Well, good morning, everybody. We are entering into the fourth week of Advent, and uh, as Pastor Megan just said, um, Bathsheba, the story of Bathsheba is hard uh, because we are going into subjects, as, as she said, that isn't often talked about, uh, A, regarding Bathsheba, but really in the church. And so um, I think it's important that we talk about it a little bit. I wouldn't say that the whole sermon is about that. Uh, but again, if you need to step out, if you need to pray, there's no judgment. No one's even going to look. Uh, but we want to offer that to you as we talk about some, some hard things that happened in Bathsheba's life. And so um, with that said, let me pray and let's get started. God, thank you that the Bible includes stories that are just really hard and messy. And, and then sadly, many of us can resonate with that mess. Uh, but we know that the whole idea of Advent, of anticipating your arrival, is the anticipation and arrival of hope. And so we thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus here on this earth as a baby to to identify with us because you love us so much. And we thank you for your spirit. May it continue to bring upon healing and comfort and peace and hope as these Advent candles all signify. In your name we pray, amen and amen. As we talk about the story of, of Bathsheba, who is in Jesus's lineage, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says this. It says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, whom we also talked about, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and we'll talk about why it's wife of Uriah as opposed to Bathsheba, but we all know we're talking about Bathsheba here. Uh, and so in this storyline, it's important for us to know that in the, in the lineage, in the family tree of Jesus, that it is really, really messy. And it comes from uh, adultery, it comes from uh, a lot of shame, it comes from sin, it comes from guilt. And at the end of the lineage, we see that the person who was born uh, is a man named Jesus. And, and what that tells us is that the hope of Advent is that no matter what your story is and no matter what it includes, and that's not to diminish your experience or your pain or your trauma because that's all real, but the Hope is that through the person of Jesus, there is power to bring about reconciliation and peace and restoration in our lives. But the hard part is, is that oftentimes we're distracted with the noise uh, of, of labels. We are distracted by the noise of the own, our own narrative that we create about ourselves due to some experiences that we've had, like trauma or mistakes that we've made or pain that we experienced or loss that we have, whatever we've experienced, we create a narrative or words that describe who we are based on what happened. In seventh grade, uh, so okay, I'm going I'm to confess a story of my life 
to, to resonate the story of God's grace uh, and really the fact that I'm up here even preaching, even with this job title called pastor, is quite the miracle if you knew the life that I lived. Uh, in seventh grade, my friends and I, and this is a, a safe place where I get to confess all my sins, knowing that you will forgive me. Uh, and hopefully know that I'm also human. In seventh grade, my friends and I, around Christmas, I think about this story because it happened around Christmas, we went to the mall, uh, and I saw a pair of jeans that I really, really wanted, but I couldn't afford. Now, some of you might be, and I might be dating my age, but the brand name of these jeans were called Jinko Jeans. Uh, and if you don't know anything about these jeans, they're really baggy. Like, I'm telling you, like, one leg is, like, this wide. And I love these jeans. But the problem is these Jinko jeans were very expensive. And I remember going into the mall, and I'll never forget it, is with my friends at the store called J.C. Penney's. And I don't know if it's still around, uh, but this was back in the day. Uh, and I thought it was a bright idea to say, hey, I want these jeans. I can't afford these jeans. So the next best thing to do was stuff it in my shirts. And, and I noticed that, you know, I was a little, you know, seventh grader making bad decisions. And I thought I was brilliant. And I had, if you know Jinko jeans, they're huge. And I had them in my shirt. And I'm walking out like this as if nobody would notice and at, as soon as I exited, I, th I thought I made it to the finish line. I see, you know, the rest of the mall going outside. I've made it. And as soon as I took that step out, the two security guards came behind me and said, hey, would you follow me? And at that moment, that's when I knew I messed up. So we went into this back office, the security office. And, you know, first I thought I was so brilliant I thought I was so bad, like in a good way and a bad way, you know, and, you know, I was going to have these baggy jeans and my friends were going to be impressed and I was going to look so good and, and all these things. And here I was the next minute later in this office crying my eyes out. And, and he said, you know, would you give, give me the jeans back? And we saw it on camera and all these things. And I said, okay. They called my parents. My parents came and, and it was... An incredible, and I'll never forget this scene because I just felt so much shame with so much eyes looking at me. I was, I was crying on this seat. There was this security guard that was staring at me. The manager of the store was staring at me. My parents were staring at me. And, and on the way home, that was the longest car ride I'd ever experienced to this day. And, and, and I don't know about your parents, but my parents, I knew when they were upset. Because they would lecture me, they would, you know, shout, or they would, you know, tell me all these, tell me I was grounded, or, or here's my punishment, or here's where I messed up. I, just, I knew when they were upset, but I also knew they were on a whole new level of upset when actually they weren't loud and, and talkative, but when they were dead silent. And that car ride was just dead silent. That's when I really knew I messed up. And I remember just sitting there, even in the car, just visibly crying and feeling so much shame. And to be honest, it's something that still haunts me today when I go to the mall, uh, when I go shopping or whatever it is. And there's oftentimes when I go to my wife, Maria, and I say, have I ever told you the story when? And she's like, yes, yes, I, you've told me a million times uh, of that story because it still hits me some kind of way. 
And, and I would say from that point on, the word shame and I have had many battles. And maybe you've experienced this too. And shame is a word or it's a narrative that I created for myself to say that that is who I am. And I remember thinking, sitting in that chair, like, I'm this, this awful criminal. That's who I am. That is my name. That's the narrative that I created for myself. That's the label that I have called myself. I'm this hardened, seventh-grade, jinko-stealing criminal with all of the eyes that were on me. And I don't know about you, but have you ever created a narrative for yourself? Maybe it's a narrative that says, I'm not good enough. I don't look good enough. I don't have enough. I am this mistake that I made. I am this, in the church we call this sinful person. All the way from the extreme to the trivial, I would imagine that many of us, we've experienced a sense of narrative for ourselves. I'm a bad person. I'm a terrible spouse. I'm a terrible friend. I've made big mistakes. I have a friend from high school who to this, today, who he is on his third marriage. And when I talk to him, he says, that's, that's who I am. I'm the person who got married three times. That's my identity. That's the narrative that I have for myself. I have another friend. Uh, a few years ago, he calls me up and he asks, and, and he was a, a friend from high school, and he calls me up and he's like, hey, can we, you know, grab coffee? And I was like, okay, like I haven't seen him in a long time. And, and after I met with him for coffee, he told me that he was in prison for five years. And he told me, Prince, like I feel so much shame around me because of what I've done, and I now have to tell people, and job applications, and this and that. He says, Prince, that's all I am. I know friends in high school who had unplanned pregnancies and who decided to have an abortion. And I know that that's a hard conversation. All this is a hard conversation. These are the stories that I've had an opportunity to walk with, not to say that I've experienced this all myself or I can fully empathize of what's happening, but I can empathize with the fact that oftentimes we have all these decisions and mistakes and trauma and pain, and for whatever it is, that becomes the narrative of who we are. And maybe the reverse is also true, that the narrative that we give ourselves is actually presumably really good. I'm the person with a lot of wealth. That's the narrative. That's who my identity is, the person with a lot of wealth or status or an incredible job, and, and that's how I describe myself. Maybe it's the way I look. That's my whole identity, and it's a good thing, and I want to identify with that kind of narrative of who my identity and who I am. And I would say this, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's from the book called The Weight of Glory. He says this, he says, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot or she cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too easily pleased. 
What C.S. Lewis is saying is this. You think your life is so amazing because you have all the wealth, you have all the ambition, you have all the things that are going great for yourself. But he says that in the eyes of God, you're dreaming way too small. God has something so much bigger and better for you. Why are you settling for good and fulfillment and joy in these little things. And in so many ways, it's because of the narrative that we give ourselves. We limit it to either the trauma or the mistakes or the pains uh, or the, the things that we've experienced, or we identify ourselves with the success in our lives. And, if, and in all those things, God says, you're dreaming too small. You have a small part of the story of what I have for you. And naturally, when we do this with ourselves, we also do this with others. We create narratives for others. We call it judgmentalism. We call it being critical. We call it, you know, uh, preconceived notions or even stereotypes or even profiling. We, we create narratives for other people based off how they look, sometimes even based off the color of their skin or what language they speak. We, we give narratives to people who voted differently than us or who have different political uh, perspectives than us, what zip code they live in, what kind of car they drive, you name it. If there's oftentimes when we uh, give narratives to ourselves, it's because we give narratives with and towards others. Now, as we get to Bathsheba, again, who's part of Jesus' genealogy, she's somebody that many of us have, if you've been around the church and know the story of King David and Bathsheba, uh, we've written off, and we'll go over the story in just a second, but just like we give ourselves narratives and other people narratives, we've given even Bathsheba, Bathsheba a narrative. We've already decided the person that Bathsheba is based off of what we know, and if you don't know much, just hold, hold on, we'll, we'll unpack that, but just to give you a uh, a small idea of how our culture has taken the name of Bathsheba. Uh, take, for instance, and I know that there's a debate on whether this is a Christmas song or not. I think many would argue that it's not, uh, but somehow it's become that. Uh, but it's a song called Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And it's a, it's a, I'll tell you right now, I think it's a beautiful and poetic song. I love the melody. I love the music. Uh, but listen to the, the lyrics carefully as I just word it to you. I'll do you a favor, and I won't sing it, uh, but I'll have the words up so you can follow along. The beginning might sound familiar. It says this. He says, Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. The baffled king composing hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And the second verse says, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. This is referring to Bathsheba in King David's story. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. Now, if you didn't know any better, if you didn't know the story of David and Bathsheba, and, and perhaps you don't, it almost sounds like Bathsheba was a victim, and David, uh, or sorry, that David was a victim, 
and Bathsheba was the one that just ruined his life. That she was some kind of seductress, that she had bad intentions, and that she wanted to somehow manipulate and, and seduce David. And so that's why David fell. David, David fell into temptation. And when we look at this really terrible misunderstanding of Bathsheba, it gives grave danger to the perception and treatment and really, frankly, bad theologies towards women. And we've experienced this. We've seen this even in our church. But let me give you a, a, uh, perhaps a different idea and vision of Bathsheba. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says this, In the spring, here's, here's the real story, the biblical story, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, which they were in Jerusalem. Rabbah was on the other side of Jordan. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, and this is where it gets a little intense, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Again, you notice the difference. Cohen's version, and really the popular ideas of Bathsheba was that she was a seductress, an adulterer, a woman who was up to no good. But the Bible, the origin of this story, tells us something a little bit different. And before we get there, I want us to, to, to notice and observe three actions of David. And the first action is this, and it tells us something about David. David remained in Jerusalem. Now, this is important. Let's not gloss over this. This was a time where Israel was at war with the Ammonites. And it says this was a time when kings went off to war. Now, while the kings were off to war and the soldiers were off to war, King David, he remained in Jerusalem. This tells you that David was a man of great power. Yes, he was a king, but not just any king. He was a king of great privilege of power, of say, of dictation. People listened to King David and to, and to otherwise created much consequences. And so David here remained in Jerusalem while everyone else was at war, sacrificing their own lives, their own families. And this tells us that he was a man of great privilege. David remained in Jerusalem. He did not go to war just like the other kings and soldiers. And, and number two, not only did David remain in Jerusalem, action number two, David saw a woman bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. Now notice the Bible doesn't say anything much more than the fact that David was on the rooftop. Now there's 
A lot of theologians that would say there's something about David being in this elevated place. Uh, but even historically, this was accurate. This was actually uh, not uncommon. Kings had a high palace where they went on the rooftop, and they were not just uh, figuratively above people, but they were physically and literally above people. There weren't homes that were built higher than the palace. The palace was the highest place in the neighborhood. And so King David was the one who went on the rooftop. King David is the one who looked around. King David is the one who happened to see Bathsheba bathing. Perhaps it was a neighbor. Perhaps it was a different, uh, different street or whatever it is. All it says is that King David is the one who saw Bathsheba bathing. And the scripture says that, that, that Bathsheba wasn't bathing to flaunt, to show herself off. It was simply to go through this ritual of cleanliness in her own home. Now, I don't want to get too into the, the ancient Jewish rituals, uh, but after uh, uh, her cycle, a woman would do this ritual cleansing. So she was doing her ritual ceremonial cleansing, and David was on the high rooftop and saw her. She presumably didn't see David. It was him that saw her. And so here we are, action number three, a man with great power and privilege who didn't even have to go to war while all the other kings and soldiers did. He was on his rooftop, saw a woman, and then action number three, David sent messengers to get her. Now you have to bring this all into context of, uh, of, of ancient Near East society where you, as a woman in a very patriarchal society, it's really hard to say no, especially to not only a man, but the king of Israel. And not only that, what makes it a little bit more complex is that Bathsheba's husband says he was Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's main soldiers. In fact, he was an officer. And at this moment, Uriah, her husband, was off to war. And, and you can see how just shady this all gets. King David knows, perhaps, that her husband is off to war. And so he says, go get her. And of course, in that society, she has no other option but to say, okay. And she goes up to his palace. They lie together. David uses her. David exploits her. David uses his power and privilege to have her come up and sexually coerce her to lay together, to have sex. Now make no mistake, David did use his power his privilege to prey upon a woman named Bathsheba who had very little agency in this moment in time. She didn't have much choice. And so again, let's not sugarcoat what happened. Bathsheba was a victim of what many would refer to as sexual violence. 
David, using his power, again, preyed on a woman he thought was attractive. He used her for, her, for his own pleasure and then sent her back. But the story doesn't end there. Bathsheba gets pregnant. And the story of David's evil doesn't end there either. David tries to cover it up. That doesn't work. And so the next best thing is to take Bathsheba as his own wife since she is bearing his child. And so what he does is as, a, as Uriah being one of his high-ranking soldiers... David devised a plan to have Uriah killed in battle. Essentially committed murder. And it worked. Uriah died in battle. And not only that, that first son that David and Bathsheba had was born and died. And so I want to take a look at Bathsheba again. Not only is she a victim of sexual violence, now she's a widow because King David had her husband killed. She's somebody who lost her first child. She's probably somebody in the community who was shunned because she committed adultery. Now, if anybody has a reason to hold on to a narrative... It's Bathsheba. Now, there's so many things that happen in between. Bathsheba was faithful. Bathsheba and David did end up marrying. Now, you can look into the story in 2 Samuel. We, we don't know how she felt about that. I, I have my own assumptions. My assumptions that that relationship was forced, that Bathsheba did what she had to do. But what we see here in 1 Kings, that wasn't the end of Bathsheba's story. Though that, the, the, that Bathsheba had every opportunity to give herself a particular narrative, God wasn't finished with who she was and who she would become. In 1 Kings chapter 2, it tells us the story uh, of her next son, Solomon. And many of us may have heard of King Solomon was the son of Bathsheba and King David, who ended up becoming king of Israel, uh, says this, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for uh, Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her. The king Solomon bowed down to Bathsheba, to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. I love this image. Bathsheba, who experienced so much pain and trauma and heartache and loss, who, who really could have used any of that as her narrative and said, this is who I am, this is the only person who I can be, dictated upon my experiences, goes in, sees her son, King Solomon, and Solomon bows down at the feet of Bathsheba and says, you are more than just the things that have happened to you. King Solomon sits down as the king of Israel on his throne. Then there's another throne for, queen, for Bathsheba who sits down at the right hand of King Solomon. And what that makes Bathsheba is the queen mother of all of Israel. 
And it's not to diminish her experience and what she's been through, but it's to say and to give a testimony of who God is. And God is saying that oftentimes the narratives that we give ourselves is not the end of the story. The only person that can give you your final narrative who can write the end of your story is none other than God. And I love what Sarah Koenig said. She's a, she's a professor at SPU. She is a Bathsheba expert as uh, part of her dissertation. She says this. She says, I have continued to work with the story of Bathsheba for so long because I find her character compelling. She says, I am especially struck by the fact that unlike Dinah in Genesis chapter 34, Bathsheba's story does not end with her victimization by David in 2 Samuel. Instead, 1 Kings, what we just read, narrates what happens later in her life when she helps her son Solomon ascend the throne. And this is the important part. Dr. Koenig, she says this, I would not want to minimize any experience of sexual assault or harassment. But Bathsheba's story, however, reminds me that a person's story is larger than a single traumatic event. In this way, too, Bathsheba's story could be helpful as a homiletical tool. Essentially, what she's saying is that God gets the last word on who you are, nothing else and nobody else. Bathsheba became the queen mother of Israel. And even David, as he repents, as he confesses, as he wrestles with all the mistakes that he has made, he is also coined as a man after God's own heart. Now, Old Testament professor John Walton says this. He says, the wording does not, the wording as in from the statement, man after God's own heart, the wording does not reflect the piety of David, but demonstrates God's exercise of will. And I would add graciousness and mercy. In other words, the statement that many of us have heard about David, a man after God's own heart, again, recenters David as, as a man who was just pursuing after God, who can do no wrong. And though, yes, God, David repented, David confessed, and God did pursue, David did pursue God, no doubt about that. But I would say going back to the phrase, the sentence in the Bible, David was a man after God's own heart, had very little to do, according to, especially according to the Old Testament scholar John Walton, had very little to do with David's piety, but it had everything to do with God's pursuit of David's heart. It was, that statement was all about God, how God pursued David, even in the midst of all his evil and wrongdoing. Now, the story of Advent, the birth of Jesus, is a birth of a new story for all of us. That just like David, God pursues each and every one of us, no matter how and no matter what story and narrative we give to ourselves. The birth of Jesus is about a new narrative, and that's the fact that we are all sons and daughters of the Most High. 
In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, uh, the writer says this, But when the fulfillment of the time came, God sent his son, born through a woman and born under the law. This was so he could redeem those under the law so that we can be adopted. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if you are his child, then you are also an heir through God. Now, what we don't know is that adoption is a crucial part of the gospel. God has adopted us as God's own son and God's daughter, and that is who we are. That is the end of our story. That is our narrative, that we belong to God no matter what. Look at the life of Bathsheba and what she experienced. All the heartache and all the pain. Look at the story of David, who's done so much wrong and so much evil. Look at the people that you don't get along with. Look at the people who voted differently than you. Look at the people who look differently than you. Look at the difference that you deem as your worst enemy. Look at the people that you just are not fond of, the, the, the people that you look down upon. Everyone, we have been grafted into the family of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. Now, the whole idea of adoption, especially in the first century, is the antithesis of being an orphan. Now, all throughout the scriptures, orphan denoted a person in danger, a vulnerability, of being marginalized, of being seen as second-class citizens. And so, therefore, if that's the case, adoption is bringing in the orphans, which denotes safety and hope and comfort and, most importantly, an identity. And so now our identity, and this is the story of Advent, is that God has the last word on who we are, and that identity is the fact that we are God's son and God's daughter, period, and that's it. End of story. And I know that sometimes that's hard to grasp. And my prayer for us this morning as I invite the worship team back up, as we have a moment of just reflection of prayer, may the Spirit soften our hearts. May the Spirit of God reside in us, transform our hearts, so that way we can acknowledge and own and name, yes, the hardship that we've experienced, the wrong that we've done, but yet at the end of the day that we are God's sons and God's daughter period. That's it. We have been adopted into the family of God. That is the story of Advent, that with the birth of Jesus is a birth of a new story. May we proclaim that this morning and forevermore. And so again, as Pastor Megan said earlier, if you need prayer, if this is something that you're grasping, if this is something that you have a hard time believing, I, would you pray with one of us? And my prayer would be that the Spirit is able to just work in and through you. Not to diminish what you've been through because that's all real. Not to let, cut you loose from your accountability because that's also real. But it's to say that at the end of the day, you are the son and daughter of the Most High. And with the birth of Jesus is a birth of a new story for you. 
may we proclaim that. May we own that. May we believe that again today and forevermore. God is so good. God is so gracious that God can take someone like me who was a hardened criminal in seventh grade God can take someone like you, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever experience that you've experienced of pain, of trauma, and turn that into a story of hope, like the mother queen of Israel, Bathsheba. May we look at the story of Bathsheba and have so much gratitude for who she is and the fact that because of who she is, we get Jesus. We get Jesus, our Lord and Savior. God, thank you so much for the story of Bathsheba and forgive us, forgive me for the way that we've viewed her, our sister, your daughter. And God, may we turn that story around into a story of redemption, even for our own lives, that just like the queen mother of Israel, Bathsheba, who has such a story, who has such a narrative, that we, just like her, can turn our stories into a story of hope and transformation because of who you are and because of what you've done, being born into uh, Emmanuel, God, with us. We're so thankful for your grace and mercy. May your spirit continue to work in and through us. In your name we pray, amen and amen.